1: a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter.
4: No, no, look at So for the uh for what you just said. Yeah. Uh, we're leaving Saturday. Yep. Yeah, me, Daniel, and Jordan Butt are going to get it.
2: They are. It's actually uh, a, um, a line extension of the cross that we call the Brooks Range Cross, which is a sheep rifle that we've been working on. So we took the opportunity to do a doll sheep hunt out of it.
4: Is it like, yeah, we can talk about it. Yep. Yeah, we can talk about it. We can talk about it. Let's do it. about Cody all throughout this
1: roundup, because he's not here. It's the classic, like if we have anything that needs to be done through this podcast, we're going to let Cody know that he was elected to do it. Okay.
4: <laughs> exactly. Perfect.
1: Um,
2: So my name is uh, Patrick Hanley. I am the uh, rifle product manager and uh, I run the uh, part of the hunting program at SIG Sauer. Um, So we're kind of, we've been around for a very long time um, in the military tactical world. And it's been about uh, three or four years on the optics, ammo and rifle side since we started diving into hunting. And now in the last year with our new rifle, we've been pretty much full bore straight ahead. And it's been exciting for me just because of my past and be able to be part of that. That's always been my passion. So it's been a really cool experience for me to see it kind of pull into Sig Sauer. I was fly fishing when I was six years old and I started hunting when I was eight years old. I had a father that was pretty much lived in the outdoors um, and he was an avid fly fisherman and wing shooter. And by the time I was about 14, I started getting myself into big game hunting on my own. I started shooting a bow and wanting to learn about deer hunting. Um, We live up in the Northeast, so it's thinner woods for whitetails, but it's a really cool type of hunting where it's just, it's a lot of big wood. Hunted sheep? I have not done sheep. I actually did uh, my first mountain goat hunt on Kodiak Island last year. And uh, so a sheep hunt has been something that I've always wanted to do. And in this instance, we were able to get two tags and uh, I talked to the business and I wanted it to be Daniel and Jordan. And my only request was that I was there. So I'm going Amazing. up with them. Um, yeah. Jordan Bud, who's going with us. She is a fantastic human being. And she has now filmed uh, 13 sheep hunts but the only one she has never filmed is a doll sheep and she has never hunted a sheep. And this will be her first sheep hunt that she actually gets to be behind the trigger. And it's going to be the last sheep that she has never been on a hunt for. So as you probably know, a lot of the people that guide and do camera, it's like being on the hunt when you're with people. So for her, she doesn't view it as like she hasn't been around these other hunts with these other sheep. She looks at it as this is the last, piece of the puzzle and for her to be behind the trigger, it's amazing. And then Daniel is uh, shooting the the other sheep that we have a tag for. And then Daniel is also going with me and we are bringing a 10 millimeter uh, pistol, which is a prototype 320 to uh, hunt a grizzly bear with. So we'll uh, we'll have some interesting uh, parts to that, I think, to see how that goes. Daniel has spent a lot of time uh practicing and researching this and i think you know we're, we're selling this gun as a bear defense pistol that's one of the big things that we're doing the 10 millimeter for and it's kind of a uh you, you want to show people that this is the right tool for the job and i think there's nobody better to be crawling through the brush with to do it than daniel so it, it's going to be yeah, a pretty cool sure. experience So we're doing it after the doll sheep, we, we, we prioritized the, the, the sheep hunt and told them uh, if we get the opportunity, we'd love to be able to do it. Um, it's, a, it's going to be a very unique hunt and the, even the guide was like, you're doing what? But it's... it's, it's, it's as
1: anyone would say, as anyone would yes,
2: say. Yes. Yes. I mean, it is a pistol caliber, but like I said, a lot of us go up into the backcountry with whether it's a shotgun or you carry a 10 mm-hmm. millimeter or a lot of people carry nine millimeters because they're accessible. And we've been spending a lot of time um, in the last year doing development. we're both We're working on both uh, some different rounds as well as the 10 millimeter 320 itself to come up with the best possible uh, like grizzly defense pistol with in the states and obviously up in Alaska, there's so much activity going around the the grizzly side of things that we feel like you know that's that's a market that a lot of people make products for but not a lot of people have focused on. You know, making the perfect carry pistol for that situation.
4: And um, absolutely. Quickly speak from my heart, and but. Uh, <laughs> Me, Jordan's story has always fascinated
1: me. And a lot of people have talked to me about Jordan. So uh, when people talk to me about other people, I tend to take notice.
2: Yeah, she actually, so she came to us um, through a conversation with some of our friends at First Light. And after I met her, I ended up going out last year to her ranch in Nebraska, and I got a chance to hunt with her. And that was where the topic of this came up, because I just realized what an incredible human being she was. She runs a ranch. She does the Rock Slide podcast. She does reviews for Rock Slide. She is uh, basically like she films and hunts a year or something crazy like that. She guides at her family's ranch. She's just all over the place. And the only thing she doesn't give herself enough time to do is to hunt as often as she wants to. And when she came on board with us, we were like, hey, this is going to be part of this. We want you to be one of our ambassador hunters because we have. We we look at her as a exactly what we feel like uh, is a classic story of what a a genuine hunter is. She grew up with a father who was a shooter but not a hunter. Mm. She had uh, she had sisters that didn't hunt, um, and she basically got into high school and said, "I really like this idea of hunting," and picked up a bow and started shooting. And she made an entire career out of it, all the way up to this point. And it's, it's really cool whenever I see anybody, whether it's male or female, that, that they don't have the influence like a lot of us did. Like my father was the one who carried me into the sport. And when I see people that are first generation, it's always very cool to me to see that somebody just on their own from, from some impression in their life where like, I want to be a part of this. And they get into it that big with no, no outside factors pulling them into it, just themselves seeing how, how much it brings for quality to their life and how much they enjoy it.
3: Absolutely.
4: Absolutely. Well,
2: <laughs> I have gone through them as much as I could. I have not been home in quite some time, and I've been trying to get through everything I could. But <laughs> let's
4: shoot. Let's do this. We have our supporters program. We are in a new. In a, That's okay. Um, Ed, if you could call me worse things, <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for John Day to hear this. Anyway, uh, moving on. Coal out of Wyoming is given scrap metal. Yeah. four animals and the winner is going to be able to pick one of them. They're like thousand five hundred bucks. That's awesome. That's really um, cool. With a mule deer and the story behind it is absolutely incredible. Custom Arrows from
3: Nexus out of Australia and AusCut Broadheads of your choosing. That's about 500 bucks in terms of
4: value. Broadhead company out of Australia. And then of uh, an F-25 Eberly stock pack.
2: the brook's range uh so we uh we've been working for the last three years with the guys from exo so i have a exo oh, um, cool. yeah it's a exo 4800 is what i usually use for elk and i used that last year in the goat hunt and i'll be using it up here we we have a pretty good relationship with those guys and they're very uh they're very good at listening to uh their feedback from people and steve speck who runs their program is just amazing like his 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 ideas and it's very intuitive, the stuff that they do on their packs are great.
4: Do you have an article that you'd like me to start with? You pick. I, I
0: know. You're smarter I know. than you. Smarter I know. I know.
2: Than you. I'm, I'm putting this right back on you. I swung it right back around.
1: Every, you know, every guest that we've had thus far, when I said pick up, they're like, oh, we will pick with this one, I guess. I I guess. Yeah, no, you gotta
2: be. I gotta be
1: unique. I will listen to you then. Okay, so let's go to my favorite topic, which is typically Africa, and is elephant hunting. So let me ask you a question, Patrick. Do you have a problem with elephant hunting? I do
3: not. Why do you think hunters
1: have an issue with elephant hunting?
2: So speaking in my own experience. I think people have a tendency in all parts of the country, which is why I think whitetail hunting is so favored that people have an understanding of what's around them and what's close to home. And if it's something that they don't have an opportunity uh, that they feel throughout their life to go and do like uh, like a, any sort of hunt in Africa, the passion to protect and to see that as a important part of uh, uh, what we do for all hunters, it, it's it's put down into a very minor scale. It would be very similar to an archer seeing a rifle law come through and saying, "Well, that doesn't affect me, so I don't care." Um, I think it's yeah, it's one of those things that we see as hunters, and we have to realize it. it it's very similar to obviously what we deal with on the the firearm side at SIG is any change in in anything in in the world of hunting has an effect on hunters as a whole and we can't we can't be blind to it we can't turn and, and look at it and say that that's that's not it's not something that will affect my life so it's not important because they you know I'll, I'll tell this to something i'm very close to and familiar with i live on the border of maine and we've been dealing with the bear baiting scenario for years i know you guys have been up there mm-hmm. and it is constantly fought and a lot of my friends in new hampshire say well as long as they don't bother new hampshire i i don't care and what they don't understand is that's the, that's the gateway. Once right. they get into something and they dig their teeth into it, it sets a precedent to start spreading all of that out. So the the what's going on over there is very similar. Once they start to pass one thing, and, and also people over here, we don't understand how important it is to the people over there, yeah. how important it is to the economy and right. the villages that it feeds and all of those other things. There's no understanding of a lot of that.
1: Right. And honestly, this article that I sent you, was a great one it was published in africa geographic and the title of the article was another giant elephant trophy hunted dash is this conservation question mark and so immediately out of the gate and it was written by james henry who is the editor-in-chief for africa geographic and so and, and it's an opinion editorial and right out of the gate there's obviously big pictures of elephants big elephants being taken in botswana this year uh there are you know for everyone's edification Botswana's elephant population is about three times over carrying capacity right now it's about a hundred thousand elephants and on quota in Botswana they had 258 I think elephants on quota to be hunted and if you can do your quick math Patrick I won't make you do your quick math but that's less than 0.001 percent of the population which means that this hunting activity really is not a population control measure by any means. Okay. Yep. And so you go through this article and he is very blunt about the fact that he does not think that trophy hunting is anything but good. He even says that I consider trophy hunting archaic and distasteful, but the article was amazing because he put his, he put his opinion aside, he put his emotion aside and he said, okay, Let's go through this methodically. Let's go through this from a population perspective. Let's go through this from an animal welfare perspective. Let's go through it from a human community welfare perspective. And then let's go through it to how much money is actually being generated for Botswana and the people of Botswana. And it was an amazing. It was an amazing article, because at the end, he says, even The most ardent, this is the conclusion, even the most ardent anti trophy hunter cannot fail to be impressed by some of these figures. And the figures were the money. Yep. And he follows it on by saying the only only the most heartless and ignorant would claim that the poor people living in these marginal areas do not deserve to benefit from maintaining the wild lands and not turning them into cattle ranches and plowed fields even though he finds the act offensive he understands that there is a necessity and a logic to what is happening on the ground even though he doesn't agree with it
2: yeah and i think that's i i think more people are coming around to a lot of that and i actually i feel like um in the last 10 years there's been a lot of growth in the hunting industry on the the meat side of hunting like understanding that more people are like, it's about the meat, not about the trophy. But at the same time, I feel like people who have, it's brought a lot of people into hunting, but I also think a lot of people are starting to learn from that how important a lot of the aspects of the trophy hunting are from both a financial perspective. But I'll throw another thing out there that I actually had a conversation with with a good friend of mine about this at one point in time, that trophy to me also means the most mature, harvestable animal in the area. It it is, is, you know, I, I live in an area of the country, like I mentioned, a lot of parts of northern Maine where I hunt, it's very poverty ridden, and people are, I just need to get something to put meat on the table, and that's fully understandable. But when you get to the point where you have somebody who is going into an area like that, and they're hunting the oldest animal that will, as you mentioned, carrying capacity, that will likely not survive that herd much longer, that being a trophy to a one person is also a good thing for the herd you're taking Mm -hmm. the correct animal out of the herd and i think for a while that got lost but i feel like a lot of people are starting to understand that aspect of trophy hunting again that it is very important to understand that 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 is part of managing the herd properly and just because we call it a trophy it's also shooting the correct animal which is incredibly important Well, that's the whole point of trophy hunting,
1: right? Is the idea that we've put a cultural value now on this mature male animal versus the old school methodology of hunting, which was anything goes, right? Exactly. It had no sustainability notion tied to the population itself. Whilst the trophy hunting, though, the the, the moniker of what a trophy is, has been sort of bastardized by the anti-hunting establishment. It is a cultural practice by which we have been able to revive wild game populations all around the world as a result thereof.
2: Yep. Yep. It's absolutely exactly what you just said. And I think that's where, like I said, it's great that we're seeing all these kinds of people understanding. And I think I mentioned last week, I think the... uh, a lot of the changes from covid have brought a lot of new hunters into the sport in north america and probably around the world because of the understanding of where their food comes from but i think those people eventually start to understand this aspect of the hunting world and it's great having more people have a reason to enter into the sport and then having voices make them understand why that portion of it is so important Mm -hmm. to the herds continuing Mm -hmm. to grow at the rate i mean people if you look at the elk populations, deer populations, everything in the United States, it's incredible. They've grown so significantly, and it's been because of that same type of practice. One thousand percent.
1: The other thing that I heard about trophy hunting, almost like the cultural value of trophy hunting is almost like a Western connotation, right? That's been placed on Africa and been placed on Pakistan, essentially for the markhor. But a, an Eastern uh, definition, if you want to call it, an Eastern meaning more rural. It's called it urban rural definition the rule definition i heard which is very very cool was that the trophy itself to the local people is the least valuable part of the animal yep because they don't you can't take the meat you can't take the meat in pakistan or anywhere else they want it they want to use it we want them to use it and to them what are they going to do with the horns they're useless yeah exactly right you take them they're, they're they don't even we don't even want them you take them
2: <laughs> yep yeah, it's, it is. And I actually remember when you brought this whole thing up, one of the uh, my prior job I, years and years ago, when I got into this industry, I worked with uh, Thompson Center. That was how I got into the industry. And they were very close at the time to where we are at Big Sour. And I remembered uh, the first time I had met Jim Shockey. And I was always admired what he had done for a lot of his television, because I felt like, he was doing a great job, not just showing his trophy hunts, but showing that awareness in the area. And I think that's a lot of what it is. I think people need to see and have the awareness of what goes on over there and not just close their eyes and see somebody going out. And like, as we've all seen, there's there's so many uh, news stories for anything they can drive negative attention, similar to what happens to a lot of stuff. It's look at all the bad and they never want to focus on telling people about the good. And when you see some of that stuff and you bring it to people's attention and they get that awareness, it's like, wow, I didn't realize that that did so much over there. It's incredible. Yeah, 1000% all about the
1: consequence, right? Let's forget about the action of killing. Yes, it's inherent to hunting. It's what we do. Okay, let's move past it. But let's talk about the consequence of the action. Exactly. The consequence of the action that you guys are about to undertake in the Brooks Range. amount of money that is being paid to the tags the economic investment into the outfitter the guide um all the things the cub if you're flying in almost the economic trickle down it's not just africa it's happening everywhere even in our backyard here in america
2: it absolutely is and that's why like i said i think uh, at least in my own region and out here in the west people i've talked to i've been very excited to see how much this pandemic in the last year has made people see the outdoors differently and be like, hey, I, I've never in my in my 40 years on this earth had any that this many people approach me and be like, hey, I really want to know more about hunting. Can you tell me more about it? And I feel like hopefully this is our open door to grab a lot of these people and give them the correct understanding of hunting because I feel like, it, it, as with a lot of things that the media does, they have their way of carving it up and making it look a certain way. And as soon as people get that access to somebody who explains it to them, they, they have a much more open mind to be like, oh, wow, I really understand all this.
1: Yeah, and so the next article that I had in there with very similar tie-in to this is a article out of Pakistan. And it was in the, the Express Tribune which is a classic colonial type (laughs) publication, I guess, in Pakistan. And the the headline of the article was Trophy Hunting for Economic Growth. And it was written by a woman and it was a very pro-hunting article for a woman to be writing it out of Pakistan. And she was like, man, you guys are doing a great job. The only thing I can fault you in is that there's not more women in the hunting industry
4: in Pakistan. Yep. What do you think about that?
2: it's uh i mean in that part of the world obviously i i don't really know what the access to entry for females is mm. i think over here it is you know me and you were talking about jordan before this podcast i think the female audience over here has had a lot more attention positive attention brought into don't don't be afraid to be a a uh, a female and want to get into hunting and i i think it's to me, it's amazing. I have uh, a few friends back home that I hunt with that don't have anybody in their family that hunt, female hunters, that have been in the sport now for five to six years. And I feel like a lot of that has been the growth in our country of, hey, you know, you, you seeing other women and being like, hey, I can do that too. I don't need somebody to pull me into it. And I mean, a lot of these cultures outside of the U.S. are different, but i mean i I feel like it's something that the world should view as yes it's accessible to everyone on both sides
1: no absolutely and what what i love about this article is it gives us some really good facts and for those of you listening here are some seeds that you need to plant in your brain so pakistan is known for a couple of different species that you can hunt there's a couple of antelope species that you can hunt but what people hunt in Pakistan really is the, is the granddaddy of them all, which is the mark there's three different types of mark in Pakistan. Typically the tags go for anywhere between in COVID times. They've been going for $80,000. Actually, they rejected about an $80,000 bid the last time, but they typically, typically go for between 150,000 and $250,000 per mark or, okay. Patrick, you should, after the Brooks range hunt and doll sheep, you should uh, ask your bosses if you can test the Brooks range rifle in <laughs> the uh in the Himalayas of Pakistan. Okay?
2: This is a great idea. I've actually watched a few Pakistan hunts before and I've always found it amazing. I believe I've seen a few Ibex hunts over there yes, that Ibex looks like absolutely. it is absolutely incredible country out there. It looks amazing.
1: Yep, and uh, surely would be a good altitude test for the Brooks Cross, right?
2: <laughs> I love this. This is, this is exactly what I need next in my life, I agree.
1: <laughs> well, what's cool about this article, again, it has some data, and here's the data. Two, just over $2 million generated from 38 Mark or Hunts between 2000 and 2020, 80% of that money, 1.6 million, goes back to local communities which is incredible amount of money when people start saying no money goes to the ground no no money goes back to local communities here's a female journalist in Pakistan
3: quoting the data it's incredible
2: yep that is incredible and that's you know that's i don't know i guess when you start to hear some of that stuff it's it's encouraging to see that other parts of the world that this is becoming a a sport that is being viewed by both sexes as something that is a a positive for their economy, a positive for the their way of life as to where they are. I mean, like that's that's very, very cool. This is one of the first articles I went through a couple of these and I went through that and it was kind of when I read through the the first part of it, it was kind of taking back because I did not I would not expect that out of Pakistan, I guess. And and I I say that being completely uncultured too how it is over there. Um, seriously, I, I would have not thought of that at any point in time as being something that would come from an article from Pakistan from a, a female author. And, an author and it's, it's incredible. It's really cool.
1: Um, it seemed like there was, a, I'm just going through the list of things here. There's a very, uh, it's almost two weeks in a row that the hunting uh, sort of space, article space in the U S has been very quiet lately. So we're dealing with a lot of African articles, but there was one American article, which I think is probably the biggest challenge facing hunting probably in the next five to 10 years. Um, if, if you, let me ask this, if you had not read this article, I'm not going to give it away because you may, maybe thinking about something else. If you hadn't read this article that I'm about to talk about, what would you have thought would be the biggest threat to hunting?
2: I know which one you're referring to. I'm guessing it's CWD.
1: Would you have said CWD before reading the article?
2: Yes, and the only reason I... I, Well, a a version of it. So one of the things Mm -hmm. that I have seen myself um, out in the Midwest was I was out in a year where um, similar but blue tongue uh, which yep. hits EHD. in that part of the country. Yeah, yeah the EHD I, is I,
1: different because it doesn't have an effect on humans. It's a different, that is it's true. A different type of disease. It's not tied to you know, brain ence- encephalopathy. It's not tied into the mad cow disease family. It, it's really, it will affect deer. Don't get me wrong. It'll have a big effect on them, right? But it really doesn't have a, a connection to humans.
2: Yeah, and they, to this point, correct me if I'm wrong, they have not seen it CWD have an effect that in is humans absolutely but they're correct but absolutely yes there's the fear of that occurring I know has created states like we uh, one of the things that year when I was out there that was the first year um that I had seen that but they also have the CWD laws already in place in New York and Ohio where you have to completely debone an animal before you travel it over state lines and we drive out to all these states. And it, it was always interesting to me, like the state of New York, we would go out there and that's more of a meat hunt for me and my family where we would go out there. And uh it was um it was very, very, very minor uh amount of instances that they had seen in the state, but they quickly reacted to it. And I mm-hmm. I know there have been some of these um like QDMA that have been doing significant amounts of research trying to find mm-hmm. out because there is a fear if it if it becomes something that is able to start affecting Humans through intake of meat, it's going to be a massive, massive issue across the country. Well, even even in today's culture, right? With whole COVID, the the the
1: idea that COVID jumped right from wildlife to humans, you know, fifteen years ago, I don't know if it was fifteen, no, much much larger than that. Probably thirty years ago, because I was still in South Africa. Thirty years ago, they had that whole mad cow disease situation in England, right? Yep, and there was some cases and. Un, un, Unknowns to long-term influence on humans, yada, 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 yada. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And the CWD issue is because it's tied to the same class of same class of prions and viruses that are tied to mad cow disease. But this article that we found, which is in the news, medical life sciences, the the title was chronic wasting disease may soon spread to humans, warn CDC. It's a very, very fear-mongering type um, headline but the entire article is the what if right what if this what if that they expect this they expect that they think this they think that
2: yeah at the end of the day just
1: like your point no no evidence
2: that's exactly what it is And, and it's it's scary because like we've seen in the last year whenever there's any sort of Fear of something like this uh, before there's uh, a lot of evidence and things like that people will quickly react and if there is anything that is put out there that goes and points in this direction of it being something like this like this article is it can immediately scare people into the just don't don't harvest any venison we don't want this in our home because this could happen and it, it like you said it becomes a a kind of a fear-mongering of this of a sense that people are going to be Reacting before there's anything to show them that there's a reason to react and you know I it it's scary to me because the the hunting market I mean a lot of us do a lot of different types of hunting but the hunting market in the us is controlled by the by white mm-hmm. Um and it's a lot of it is just access to the average American it has become the number one uh, hunted animal for a long time for a very good reason and the The idea of that is, it would be devastating to, uh, you know, the Pittman Robinson, the everything that we we utilize for funds to continue to like. As soon as you don't have hunting licenses flowing into these states, because people are, I'm not going out this year, because it could devastate the hunting market. It absolutely could. There's so many things that that can create. Just fear of it can create. You don't even need an actual an evidence and i remember when it first hit i remember all of my friends that i hunted with coming to me going hey uh, i wouldn't do that they're saying the cwd stuff is killing killing off deer and nobody had any evidence at that point either and it did slowly drift away for a few years sure. but stuff like this is what makes it it, it can instantly make a comeback if mm-hmm. somebody decides that they want to put it on the front page mm-hmm. and start pushing around the idea of that affecting humans mm-hmm.
1: You know, I'll take it one step further because I'm I'm so neck deep into this stuff. But when you look at Fish and Wildlife Service surveys of non hunters and their approval of why we are able to hunt, okay, we have an 86% approval rating when it's tied to meat, when it's tied to the use of that animal for food. And I'm worried that if that is gone not gone but if if you know and it, and again this is all skeptical this is all hypothetical there's no absolute tangible evidence tied to cwd being present in humans it's all a what if type scenario but if that what if if you play that what if out into the anti hunting space mhm it would be almost a, an idea of why you you don't even you don't hunt for meat anymore so you've just wiped out 86% of the approval of why we hunt.
2: Correct.
4: And
3: I think it would have an effect on hunt. Go ahead.
2: No, I was going to say, I think that would have an effect on some of the hunters too, because I, I've always been kind of taken back by people that I've met over the course of my life that I'll hunt with and they're avid deer hunters, they're avid bird hunters. And then you'll be like, you'll start to talk about predator hunting and that immediate thing pops up of If I can't eat it, I I don't hunt it. And I I hear that. Yeah, I hear that quite a bit. And there's no understanding of what that does for like in 90% of the country, there's no natural predator to a coyote. So when people are saying, I would never do that, they don't have an understanding of what they do to the populations of the animals they do hunt. And that's Mm -hmm. scary. But it's also something that is that guy now going to just say, I don't hunt anymore and I don't buy a license because... I, I don't need it for anything else other than the one animal that I want to shoot every. Day. Yeah, exactly. No, there's a huge. Does it also change his perspective as. Yes, it, 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 it was, it was incredible to me when I grew up. Uh, I had told you earlier, I grew up uh, fly fishing and hunting with my dad and my dad had always told me um, he was very avid about this. And he always talked to me about it growing up that he had always feared the death of the outdoorsman. And his meaning behind that, he would always tell me, is he saw so many people that would get into fly fishing that were against hunting. He would see people get into hunting that never wanted to go and pick up a fishing rod. And they also didn't believe in hunting certain types of animals. And he spoke of, like, back when he was a young man and how there was most of the people he hunted with were outdoorsmen. Like, you lived the outdoors. You did all of those things in the outdoors. And he said that is the biggest risk to the to the to the hunter and the fisherman is that we divide ourselves and we become, I don't I don't agree with you, you don't agree with me, I like this, you like that. And it's scary because I I do I I do see it more and more where I have people that I will talk to and they're like, no, this is the only type I do. I don't get into that or this or that. And to me, that tells me like maybe their point of access was easier to learn how to hunt a whitetail. Or Mm -hmm. maybe that their dad picked up a fishing rod but never had hunted before. So they never got into it. But what scares me about it is like we were talking about earlier is we all have to be one big united family because if we're not and they look at, you know, when you bring up the the elephant hunting and they look and say, that doesn't affect me and I'd prefer to fish anyway, then we just lost a person from the group that we feel like is in our group and it's because they haven't had those other experiences. They've had the one experience and sheltered themselves (sighs) from all else that brings happiness in the outdoors to most of us.
1: Mm-hmm. no you just nailed
3: you nailed it man that's that the, the 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 fracturing of our hunting community is
1: is worrisome um i worry more about the hunting community than i do PETA and the humane society which says something right
2: i i 100 agree with you like i said growing up I fly fished a lot of places with my dad. And when I would start talking about hunting with people, I just, that's where that conversation came to my father. I, they would they would start to get very upset having that conversation. And my dad started explaining to me at that point. And then I started talking to other hunters about other types of hunting. And yeah, it, it, it's, it's, we be, we become who we are because we enjoy all aspects. And I fear like if people don't see, all there is to offer from the, from the outdoors as a whole. Like we need to be one big netted community together of fishermen. And one of the big ones that pops up all the time that I grew up doing, I can't tell you how many people I've told that I trap that immediately are like, I, I agree with hunting. I agree with fishing. Don't talk to me about that. And, and I I have a very, you know, me and my brother-in-law, we have a system of how we trap and why we trap. And we we it's just an avid part of our life. We love it, but when you try to explain it to most people, it's and these are hunters and they're people who live outdoors. They're like, yep. I don't want you to talk to me about that. And they start telling me all of these false facts about trapping and what we're doing to the animal. And it's like, I, I don't think you understand what you're what you've been told is not at all what we all do. So it, it is scary because all of us as a whole, if we don't combine our heads together it's going to get harder and harder in the next couple decades to protect what we do.
1: No, hundred percent. Right. We're actually contemplating with, a, uh, doing another series, a little content series called I am a hunter, but yep. I am a hunter, but I abhor elephant hunting. I am a hunter, but trapping, trapping. No, that hunters don't trap it, those kinds of things, because it happens all the time and it's coming more and more and more
2: common. Yes, and I I honestly feel like, to me, it's a point of entry. Like, if you look in the state that I'm in, um, trapping was once huge. It was a very big part of the economy, the population control. It was all these things. And if you look at classes in New Hampshire, Maine, and Vermont now, they're they're teaching 10 people at a time, maybe. And the trapping community just has shrunk down to nothing. Mm -hmm. And... And the people who go and they sit down and they learn from the elders who've been doing this for decades, they're like, I understand every bit of this. Me and my brother-in-law actually went to learn years and years and years ago how to trap coyotes in an area that we were trying to minimize the populations. And the the gentleman that was there taught us about uh, trapping beaver and trapping fisher cats and all these other things. And he was explaining to us all the function of it. And we just became like, wow, this is incredible. And next thing you know, we got con bears and footholds yeah, and all yeah, these things yeah. falling off the walls in my house like it became a it became very interesting to me but I, I i feel like enough people don't grow up around people who teach them about it so they just hear the word and the immediate thing is thinking of an animal getting smashed into a trap and suffering for 10 days and they don't understand how all of the the changes that have been made in the laws around it and like how you know trappers are checking 24 hours at maximum on their traps and the way that the traps have changed over time, like there's not a lot of understanding of how things have have transpired in that whole world. And it's sad because I feel like that has become, in my area at least, it has become a dying, dying breed of people. Absolutely. I I like your idea. I think that's a great idea because it's always been baffling to me and I've always wondered more than anything why people feel that way, why somebody who could be a deer hunter their entire life would look and say, I don't believe in in coyote hunting or elephant hunting or this or this, and really to understand their perspective, and see if it's an educational thing, or if it's a something that was brought into their life at a later age, and they didn't understand it. So they immediately turned away from it or what it is that it's exactly that I think it's it's a
1: matter of testing the value structure that they seat their opinion on. Like I'll give you one, I'll give you one that I've worked out. So here's the perf- the first one we'll probably start with, which we've talked about a lot today, which is, I am a hunter, but I hate trophy hunting. Yep. So my response there would be, do you target mature animals purposely? Do you pass on young animals for older ones? Because if you do, You are placing a greater cultural value on one animal over another, which is the whole premise of trophy hunting. So, and this is how we're going to end them all. A hunter is a hunter. No, buts.
2: I love it. And like I said, and I, I, so I grew where I grew up in parts of, uh, Northern Maine. I always found it the most interesting place for me to run into other hunters. And if you've never seen, I I know you've gone up there bear hunting, I, I don't know if you've seen the, the culture up there as much in the white tail season, but it's, it, it's great. It's flannel shirts and jeans and guys getting on a track for three days at a time. And they're just very interesting people to meet. And the reason the culture is like that, and it's so different from other parts of the country is because the, most of Maine's wealth is, is coastal. So when you get into the Northern parts of the state, there's not a lot of jobs. And a lot of the people for decades their survival was based on deer meat mm. and I, I had a few gentlemen that came out a couple of years ago from the west and they came out and they had read a, a very famous book that I told them they should read before they came out and it was written by Larry Benoit. Do you familiar with who Larry Benoit is? I am not. Larry Benoit was, uh, he was the, the god of the eastern tracking world. He was, a, it was a whole family, the Benoit family, and they were legendary trackers out in the east and When he came out there, he was these guys from the West. They said to me, I think it's incredible that when you guys say, I shot a 200 deer, that you're talking about the weight and you're not talking about the antlers. And where that stemmed from was for decades out there, people didn't shoot a 250 pound deer at that time because they wanted to go and tell everybody how big the deer they shot was. It was, if I have one deer in this season and I'm going to feed my family for the entire year, I want that biggest, oldest buck. And so the pride became coming back in and dragging in that buck and being like, he's 250 pounds dressed and people would be like, wow, that's incredible. And so it was a form of trophy hunting, but there Mm -hmm. was nothing put on the antlers because the antler growth in that part of the country is not phenomenal at all. All, and they actually out in, in Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont, they have the big buck club and your, your deer is scored on weight and not on antlers.
3: Wow, and if cool. you get
2: a two hundred pound deer, you get a certificate and you get a patch to put on your flannel jacket and it's It's such a cool world because all of that came from hunters doing what they were brought up to do, which was find the biggest, most mature deer in the woods and harvest him because he's going to provide the most meat to your family and That is a form of trophy hunting that has a different purpose, but it it accomplishes the same thing that we're talking about of those people were hunting the most mature animal mm-hmm. for the same reason that we talk about, you know, we, we talk about the, the meat aspect of it. That's a big part of it. If I can harvest a deer that's older and more mature, and like, you know, one the deer I shot in northern New Hampshire last year was 238 pounds dressed in wow. archery season, the, the amount of meat that that will provide me, which it's still providing me at home, yes, the whole experience is great. The, the deer hanging on my wall is amazing, but that level of Meat that I got from that experience, that's that's the most that's incredible that I accomplished all of those things we're talking about. Not one thing, I accomplished all of them. you're eighty five percent person that wants to meat. I got the most amount of meat from my family to make it through an entire year, and I got the trophy and I harvested the oldest animal in the woods. Yep. I did all of the things that we do as hunters yep. that accompany trophy hunting. That's great. It's great stuff.
1: Well, we've reached uh, the top of the hour uh, already. Good times when you're rolling, but uh, let me let you finish us out, Patrick, and I'll, I'll tee you up. Um, if people are not familiar with Six Hour being in the hunting game, give them an idea of what Six Hour does in the hunting game.
2: So I got into uh, Six Hour five years ago, and we had some scopes and, and ammo, like I had mentioned. But um, when we started digging into the, the, the hunting world. Um, the way that I had talked to the company and our optics people and our ammo people had talked to the company about the products we were trying to do, it was there was so much being done in other parts of the firearms world. And like I had mentioned, I felt like the, the firearm side had been forgotten. We, where we see a brand new bow every single year with mm-hmm. all of these new features and all of this new technology and all of these things. And we we kind of forgot about the firearm hunter. It became a utilitarian tool mm-hmm. and the technology aspect of it kind of fell off. And what we started to do with the cross, what we're doing with products that we're working on right now, going out into the future in all kinds of different hunting markets is we want to be the leaders in the technology growth of the hunting market to start to show people that there are newer, better ways to accomplish what you're looking to do in the field. Just like when you find a bow that shoots, you know, 40 feet per second faster with the same full weight. And we've looked at things from our side of it, which like we do our 277 Sig Fury, it gives, you a, it gives you a short action gun with a 16 inch barrel that you can easily suppress and fold and you don't have a gigantic rifle on your back and you're getting 3000 feet per second out of a 150 grain bullet. It's allowing you to have a compact magnum hunting rifle. And these are the type of things that we're looking at for the future that SIG hunting will be is we want to be the technology growth that other aspects of hunting is seen in the clothing and in the archery side. We want to be that on the firearms, optics, and ammo side. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I can't wait to
1: see what you guys have. I can't wait to see pictures from the Brooks range of two magnificent doll sheep and hopefully a grizzly bear uh if was so. all, all said and done right yep well patrick i much appreciate your time and uh you can tell daniel and jordan that they're very loud in the background okay
2: they yeah, i i will do that we're like i mentioned to you we're actually at the cambio shooting center and there's a big event going on but it is it's very cool where it's it's neat seeing all the people here having a good time and everything but it's hard to find a a, a quiet place but we we made it through it yes sir
1: absolutely